This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Thomas Adams, a.k.a. Vasco, uh, of the band Ruin. Today is December 16th, 2013. Uh, we're conducting this interview at my house in the Roxborough neighborhood of Philadelphia, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Vasco! Hi. Hello, Joseph. Hello. Hello. Well, first of all, what is Santa bringing you this year in your stocking? Um, I haven't seen him for a few years, so I don't know. Did he, I, he part, I don't parted, parted ways? Yeah, he, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think I got cold one time from him, so I don't, <laughs> and I just wrote him off, you know, gave up on him. What a dick. Yeah, yeah. Man. All right, well, anyways, uh, where were you born and when? Oh, okay, uh, where and when? Uh, 1958 is when, and where is, uh, East Coast, so I started in South, uh, no, uh, St. Johnsbury, Vermont, and then uh, you want to just uh, talk about where I grew up and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, did you did you move out of that, that place to somewhere else shortly after, or were you there for a while? What? Yeah, I guess in a nutshell, it was like um, Delaware Valley, so like Trenton, Morrisville, Pennington, Princeton, uh, uh, at times in Virginia, sometimes... Why were you moving about that often? Um, initially, it was because my mother was running away from my father. Uh, then at one point, it was my mother was abandoning us, and my father found us foster care. And uh, it was like, never really settled in. I didn't find out I was into fo foster care until after... Like I was in the counseling, you know, as a teenager, as we get in therapy. But you had, so you'd forgotten that you spent a time in it, or well, I didn't know what the hell was going on. Oh, okay. I was told what was going on, but I didn't really know until I was like in counseling, talking with my therapist about it. He says, "Oh, it sounds like you were in foster care." <laughs> so it was like pretty much up until I was thirteen or so. It was just uh, going from place to place in foster uh, care. Uh, peppered with appearances from my mom and dad. Sometimes was, my dad wasn't around for months. Sometimes my mother wasn't around for years. So when you were in the house with your parents, was it really tumultuous within the house? Yeah, yeah. It was so much so that um, I would have these waking nightmares. I thought the place was like haunted, like you know. In hindsight, it's like Amityville horror. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And actually, it was just me coping as a child with the terror that was going on with my father right. uh, abusing my mother and, and so on. Did, did he act towards you as well? Uh, uh, y y years later, yeah. yeah. Mm. He was a mess. He was quite a mess. Right. He had us young. My mom was young. They were kids, 20 and 19. Right. Um, my dad was coming out of an abusive home. He was alcoholic by the time he was a teenager. Right. So he didn't really adjust to living and he had me and Later, my sister and my mother was young and stuff like that. They were both young, and no real situation, no healthy situation they were both coming out of. So they were a mess, and that made my life a mess. Yeah. So how did young you manage to, to adapt to all this, to the, you know, what was going on in the house as well as like all this moving around and foster homes and all that? How did I learn to adapt to it? Oh, yeah. oh um... I put on a face, I learned a polite thing, I learned how to be polite and sneak. I learned how to be, uh, you know, uh, stealthy and and uh, sneak my way around things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I just tried to avoid as much as I could that, that required any work, I know that. 
And it was just more into fun and games. Because I was getting, at one point, one foster care situation, I was getting beat up and stuff. By the parents or the or the Yeah, kids? by the woman who was taking care of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she was beating us for no reason at any time or of the day or night. And I figured, what the hell, is getting beat, so why not be a badass, you know? So I became a juvenile delinquent, in a sense, as, as a way out. Like So I just, whatever was easiest, whatever was fun, whether it be breaking into warehouses or stuff like that, or shoplifting mm-hmm. and skipping school and stuff like that. So is this teenage years, or is this even prior to that? Oh, yeah, it was before I was a teenager. Okay. I started, like, I started skipping school in third grade. Wow. Yeah, I was just like... I can see this is no fun, this this world that I was in, you know what I mean? And I said, it didn't make sense to me why I go to school and, and why not, you know. I don't, I guess I was just trying to get some relief, you know, yeah. from all the trauma. Yeah. Did you have any sort of recourse when you're staying with a foster parent who's beating you? I mean, is there someone that you can go to or are you sort of just subjected to it? And was it... Uh, it at the time, there was, I think some people tried to help in the neighborhood, um... They snuck into our house and they left a, a post-it note or like a little card on the refrigerator for Covenant House. Yeah. They, uh, Covenant House takes care of uh, runaway children, abused kids and so on like that. So there was that kind of, you know, uh, but nothing else. I mean, it never, it never went beyond it until my mother reappeared and took us out of that situation to... Suburbia, mm-hmm. and what in the suburbia is. Right. So here, I, in my initial life was like urban to rural, back and forth. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know. I didn't know where I was. Sometimes we'd be leaving in the middle of the night, going to some to escape my father. You know, stalking my mom and stuff. So I was like, I never knew where to, I was going to land or anything. And uh, but at, at one point, so she came back after a couple of years, and took us out of Trenton, an urban situation. I was about to become a teenager. I was like 12 or 13. And I was headed toward a life of crime. And uh, Trenton's a rough city. I mean, yeah, r- rough yeah, then, yeah. rough now, rough all times. Man. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, I, and I was getting along with the petty criminals, you know. And I figured I would probably would end up dead. So, But I, I, initially, though, I, I was really resistant to going to suburbia. Mm-hmm. And uh, and with my mother, who I hadn't seen for years, you know, and um, so that was that was a bit rough. How old were you then when when she came about back into the picture? Thirteen, about okay. thirteen. Right. And it then was the were you moving kind of into a stable environment from that point? Well, it was an attempt to do that. It right. was an attempt to do that, um, but she was still young, I suppose, and she hadn't a clue about parenting. And she married somebody who was young. He's about 30 or so. And here he is, 30, with these teenage kids who are about to be teenage kids that were totally coming out of dysfunctional upbringing. And he had to cope with that. The poor guy. Yeah, so uh, that was a mess. That was, But after a while, I kind of got into it because it was. I found the woods and I went out in the woods and it was like the, the least stress, uh, stressful environment ever that I had in my life, you know. So I ended up spending just cutting school and going going into the woods a lot, mm-hmm. smoking weed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's how I coped with all that crap. But I apparently I didn't learn. 
I started going to counseling and therapy because I got thrown out of school, went to school for emotionally disturbed and stuff. I was a real nut, I guess, emotionally disturbed person. Were you fighting as well? Fighting, um, uh, crime, you know, petty crime. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go into the details, but I was, I guess I was acting out or something. Yeah, but uh, that kind of shaped me. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm going through all this because I think it shaped somebody that was would find punk rock welcoming. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Especially with the Sex Pistols. I mean, when I saw their pictures in Cream Magazine, at that time, like 70s, it was like there wasn't much exposure to media, uh, you know, from around the world or anything or, or various pop culture things. Yeah, what, TV, radio, magazines? Yeah. So, Cream Magazine came around, and that was like, because like you were asking how I cope with all this crap, all that crap, and I did it through th thrill-seeking, right? But then um, I was thinking, okay, well, how am I going to get out of this? You know, what am I going to do as an adult? Mm -hmm. And uh, sports didn't work out. I, uh, I was in the minor leagues for the little league, Mm -hmm. I was pretty poor at the sports. So I figured the other thing was music. Because in one foster home, I remember uh, giving a performance of singing monkey songs to a group of girls. Yeah, and, and the they, girls like it. And they loved it. And yeah, I was right. like, hey, this is, I was about eight or ten or so. Yeah. And I was like, oh, so this is what it's, you know, I can do what the monkeys do, yeah. And I think that, that was the first seed of why I want to be a performer. But, um, so, yeah, then... So I was quite a mess by teenage years when punk rock came around. And uh, it was, seemed like, wow, this is like, I couldn't make it in sports. I wasn't going to go with the academic route um, with school because, I, like I said, I was skipping school since third grade. Somehow I managed to, you know, pass and move along. Mm -hmm. But then in high school, I just couldn't get, deal with that. So I uh, couldn't do sports. So I decided I, I'm going to do something with music probably, mm -hmm. you know, and then... Fortunately, punk rock came around. It was like even more so, uh, more of a possible, it seemed more, even more possible. Did it seem like you know? this was something that you could, you didn't need to be a rock star or someone of like a, a tremendous talent in order to be able to come into this? Exactly. This yeah. Exactly. Because before that, it was like, uh, you know, really polished musicians and the, the rock music. I mean, there was some stuff that was geared towards the kids, like the monkeys. And then, uh, you know, but after that, I mean, after 65, it seemed like, it seemed like most of the music was geared towards young adults or even older. Mm -hmm. And as a kid growing up, it was kind of like, I listened to a lot of this stuff, and, but I kind of could never really relate. It was, I always felt alienated because they're talking to a different age group, you know? Mm -hmm. And then punk rock, I mean, there was Alice Cooper. I gotta say that Alice Cooper, he, he helped, you know, he's like, oh, here, here's an alternative. Um, because in high school it was Alice Cooper mm -hmm. and either that, uh, I was the only one who liked Alice Cooper, but in the rest of the high school, all well, the white kids anyway, there was only a couple of black kids. Yeah. Um, they wanted the Grateful Dead. Okay. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. It's like, whew, I was really, it was tough, but that's how I met Glenn too, by the way. I was drawing pictures of Alice Cooper in science class and he turned around, got his attention. Uh -huh. So, I found, I so found, he, he was a fellow fan of, of Alice Cooper. Yeah, so me and him, he and I were the only fans of uh, Alice Cooper and that whole high school, like 1200 or something. It was a trip, yeah. Thinking back how, you know, with the, 
why punk rock seemed so attractive, mm-hmm. you know, as it, it was something that was an alternative it's, that spoke to us as teenagers. Uh, we, we came, Glenn and I came into the, the 70s as teenagers, and um, this, was, this was ours, you know. It wasn't, we couldn't be hippies because we were too young. Right. So we missed that. Mm-hmm. And plus, like I was saying, the music seemed, I liked, I liked Led Zeppelin, you know, but I didn't know what the heck they were singing about, you know. I was too young to know. They was experiencing about trolls and orcs and hobbits. Yeah, or the backdoor man type yeah. of thing, you know, yeah, and yeah. the, the boo situation. I, I hadn't been doing that. I was like 14, 15 years old, you know. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. out there boozing and, and, and chasing after women yet, you know. And, so when the Sex Pistols came along, yeah. did you see it as, as this scene, as this punk rock scene, or did you see them kind of like as an isolated element, like these, you know, group of weirdos or... You know, how did it strike you when you first came upon it? Well, I was primed for it by Cream Magazine and Hip Parader. Because mm-hmm. I had I discovered, like, uh, there was a record store called The Comfort Station in New, in this suburban town in New Jersey. What, what town were you in? Medford. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. just a bunch of pine trees, no street lights, and housing developments. Um, and it's pretty sterile. It's well manicured and landscaped. <laughs> Yeah. And it's like I said, it's sterile. You have to do anything. You drive miles to go to the mall. I mean, I, I found fun in the woods and riding my bike around and find a bunch of like-minded folks that would just, you know, get a hold of a bunch of drugs and sit around while the parents were out of the house, you know. And, nah. But uh, where, where was I going? Well, we're <laughs> talking about uh, like the, the initial impact of, of finding the Sex Pistols. Like, do you see it as part of this? Kind of oh, like yeah, a, a yeah. scene, you know. That yeah, you... I was primed for it by those magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lester Bangs in particular, the rock journalist. Yeah. He was telling me about Iggy, Velvet Underground, and the New York Dolls. Mm-hmm. New York Dolls was like, whew, they were a blast of fresh air. It was kind of weird because they were all glam and, you know, trans. Um, they were like Rocky Horror Picture Show type of. Yeah. What do they call the transvestite it? or transsexual? Yeah, like yeah. there's some cross-dressing elements in there yeah. in, the, in the glamour glitter rock with the makeup and the. Outfit. It was really something that was totally rebellious against everything that I knew. You Did know? it make you want to dress peers. up like a girl? I, I I went that glam route. You mm-hmm. know, I went to the. Um, I think it was about sixteen, seventeen. Hawkwind came to the Tower Theater. They had a Space nineteen ninety nine party, and it was just like everybody in full splendor of being glammed out with their all converging at this tower theater. I remember Glenn and I were on the Broad Street line getting all these looks. And here I was in mid-teens, mm-hmm. and it was quite a thrill to, to, to be having all these gawkers. Like, oh, my God, look at this guy. Because I was, I was wearing makeup. I found a bunch of crap that was like, uh, what is it, not lame, golden lame? Uh, what do you call Lame? Lame, that's yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. yeah. And stuff like that, and we went to this party and at the tower, and there was a bunch of weed. And God, I can only imagine what that that gathering of the freaks would have looked like at that time. It must oh, have been amazing. Uh, it, it it was out of this world, and it was like so um, comforting to know that there were other oddballs out there from all over. You know yeah, what I mean? Because yeah. they came from England, I guess. Yeah, and I imagine that these oddballs probably don't necessarily know exactly how oddballs are supposed to look. So probably like they had really unique takes on the thing, like very individualistic takes on what they should look like rather than like a cardboard, you know, 
everyone must have a mohawk and a leather jacket. You know, it was very... That's, yeah, that's interesting when you look at it that way because it was... No one really defined the style. Yeah. You had to make... It was makeshift. Everything... I, I was just grabbing stuff like my mom's uh, kimono or something. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Probably, and imagine like a whole audience of people doing the same thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And just really throwing it together and getting yeah. together and... Phew, that was a mind-blowing show, I have to say. Uh, they had strobe lights. They had that Stacia... The woman dancing. Oh yeah, yeah. She was so she was still with him. Yeah, I remember. She was larger than life. She seemed like seven foot tall, and here I was like fourteen, fifteen, or whatever. And I was like, whoa, you know. Yeah, yeah. This Amazonian queen, you know, whatever, rocking and roll queen. But anyway, so that yeah, that's interesting because that's that's when I could explore the glam thing, the uh, being theatrical as mm -hmm. a kid, as a way to um, uh, keep to, to let people know by my appearance that. I wasn't satisfied with your world, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Be it my peers or the adults that I had to deal with. All right. Right? Yeah. yeah. So when you started to uh, see this punk thing was happening, what was then your move like into it? Like how did you begin to move into an actual scene of punk, you know, in the late 70s? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was still coming through. I was still in suburbia, but I ended up at the Job Corps up in uh, near Buffalo, New York, and uh, meeting other kids that were just getting hints of it through magazines and so on. But it was through records and, and, and seeing Glenn every once in a while. Glenn, you know, the guitarist from Ruin. Mm -hmm. I'm filling in the blanks here. Um, Glenn and I met in high school, and we, we stayed friends uh, off and on uh, for years since. But, um, yeah, so he would tell us, like, hey, you hear about Leonard Cohen? He says, oh, that's awesome, Tom. You hear about The Clash? Oh, yeah, let me check them out. Mm -hmm. What about Sex Pistols? And so we're, uh, that it, it seemed like I was moving towards that, like New York Dolls, Alice Cooper, Iggy. They, had, they were singing lyrics that I could relate with more so than the other bands previous in rock and roll. Mm -hmm. So they primed me for it. And then when I saw those pictures of the Sex Pistols in Cream Magazine and started hearing about them, it was like, Wow, these are this is it finally stripped down. Like Alice Cooper by this time was playing golf with Bing Crosby. So he, yeah, not scary. He was not a rebel for me anymore. Yeah. You know? But these guys, hey, it's, oh oh, the sex pistols, they're for real. Mm -hmm. They're not putting on a show like Alice, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. They're for real. Mm -hmm. And that's what I am. I'm for real because I'm a badass, you know, like right. like I said, juvenile delinquent, petty criminal <laughs> crap. Um and uh, so they were for me, you know, like being all snotty and and uh, impolite, mm -hmm. I suppose. Do you remember what your first punk show was? Hmm. Wow. Punk. <laughs> what the heck was punk? Who did? Oh, I saw the Cramps at the Hot Club. Okay. Yeah. So that would. What year was that? Do you recall? It probably? must have been late seventies, maybe seventy nine. Okay. Maybe even before then, but yeah, that was the first one because. I I mean I've been to other shows, but anybody that was notable, I guess, were the Cramps. I've been to hot clubs maybe a couple of times, and uh, saw like local bands or I think there's this band from New York called the Stimulators. They're like the Dead Boys mm -hmm. a little bit. They're really good. I mean they were they were better than um, some of the bands at that time that were regional, you know, imitating bands like Yes or something. Yeah. These were guys imitating maybe Dead Boys or taking on that. So that was that was fresh, um, and then the cramps. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, the the whole punk rock thing was like, 
I didn't get to really see much shows until I got to Philly. I mean, here I had all the records. I was in the 77, 70s punk, the jam telling me, you know, how to live life uh, mm -hmm. in the modern world and being with the Clash and, you know, uh, in my head all the time. And then I got to Philly because Glenn had uh, moved there. I was checking out the scene, I suppose, seeing what's available with the clubs. Mm -hmm. And because uh, we we talked about doing the band even before I got to Philly, even as teenagers, we were writing songs for this yeah. for Rowan, and we were always thinking about. It. I mean, even locked in suburbia, we'd call up XPN and talk to Lee Paris. Mm -hmm. He's like um, he helped. He was one of the DJs that brought punk rock to Philadelphia. Uh, he was XPN was the alternative to the mainstream radio at that time bringing rock and roll to kids, which was what, MMR and WYSP maybe. Um, they were just, you know, giving you the, um, the, the, the rehash, the retreads, the stuff that was still going on in the 60s. And here, XPN was playing stuff that was maybe we missed in the 60s, mm -hmm. stuff we missed, and then also stuff that was coming from the future. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and then Lee Paris had his punk rock show with... Um, Royd Kafka, I forget his real name. That was his, his uh, nom de plume or his DJ name, um, Royd Kafka. And uh, yeah, so, you know, it could be Android or Hemorrhoid or whatever. Yeah, I was thinking Hemorrhoid. It's <laughs> like, yeah. But either, yeah, Android's pretty good too. Apparently, he had the collection and he had the records and the technical ability. And then Lee Paris had the personality. Mm -hmm. To uh, and the, you know the communications uh, savvy. Now, when you explain, uh, I mean, this might have been touched upon in some of the other interviews, but what ultimately wound up happening with Lee Paris, for those who who may not know? Uh, well, I guess he was, you know, he had the radio show. He took it. He tried to take it to the next level with the mainstream. I think he ended up on a commercial radio station. He also did. Uh, promotions eventually for uh, larger acts with more of a reach as far as media exposure. Mm -hmm. I think he was trying to uh, do that um, and bring punk to the mainstream. I think he was, uh, that's how I recall. I mean, what do you want to know about? Oh, and untimely death or? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, ultimately <laughs> that's what it ends with. But I mean, how, yeah, yeah. What, what was that all about? Do you he he was, uh, I don't know. I mean, he was very active and he was a mover and shaker in the scene as far as promoting and and networking uh, getting people together to do things for events and shows and so on he had some attempts with uh making some um, commercial success with a few bands like uh bunny drums at the time he, he he took them under his wing or he decided to be their promoter and i think he had some success with getting them some exposure in europe um, or he would take on a band and uh, it, that was a favorite of his and, and try to get them shows in Philly mm -hmm. and try to promote their, their thing. And that's what he was about. If he liked you, if he thought you had some potential, he would try to groom you or put you in situations uh, where your band could uh, you know, get a, a larger audience. Mm -hmm. And that's what he, he was writing uh, in, a, in a weekly paper. He had a column. He's doing the radio DJ stuff. And like I said, networking. He was DJing at a club or two, maybe. Um, so he was, uh, I think he graduated with, he was a communications major or something. So that, that's what he wanted to do. I think he wanted to 
present things and say, hey, he was like a tastemaker and say, he, he turned me on to a lot of punk rock. So, mm -hmm. I mean, and uh, I, I think he liked what I was doing. He, he would write me up a lot in the bands that I was in at the time. What brought about his untimely demise? I think he was sad and I think he was, um, um, he was prone to uh, trying to find some comfort in drugs, I think. And he made a mistake, and maybe he realized he made a mistake, and he tried to call somebody and say, hey, you know, I, I OD'd. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but that's, that's kind of the sad story about it, is that he probably, because I've been there too, where you've taken too many drugs or a combination of drugs and alcohol, and you know you're, you're kind of like, they're really uh, pushing your body to the limits. And uh, fortunately, I only passed out, but he... Uh, he apparently passed out for good, you know. Is that what you wanted to yeah, hear yeah, yeah. about? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk, we'll talk a little bit about uh, drugs for a second. Um, how prevalent were, were drugs on the scene in early punk scene of Philadelphia, late, late 70s into early 80s? They're readily available. Mm -hmm. And then you... what were people customarily using? Um, at first, it was speed. So you were either booting it up, that meant, you know, you're using a needle and you were shooting up this, uh, this, this concoction that was called speed or meth or crank. Mm -hmm. Who knows what it was? It was so really, probably largely impure. Probably. I mean, there's, it was various grades of it too. Some of it was really nice and white. Some of it was brown and slushy. Yeah. And, uh, you could snort it, you could shoot it. But man, it had some kick. It was great. Um, there were plenty of prescription pills available. There was plenty of acid. I was able to get sheets at a time. It was readily available. It was just, uh, and that was late 70s, early 80s. And then I think maybe towards the early 80s and mid 80s, junk came around. To heroin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, someone was telling me that it happens in cycles that. <laughs> Over the years, it's like maybe you get a three or four or five year period of stimulants and then it goes to the depressants. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened over that 10 year period. It's definitely started out with a bunch of speed and acid. And then it went, you know, like I was telling you about earlier, about those folks that went down the cul-de-sac and never found their way out. Yeah. You know, like that got hooked into that heroin culture. So how much of a part of your life were, were drugs to you at that time? I mean, you've, you've mentioned that you've you know, had experiences with some of these things. Were they, was it a crucial part of your life? It, it, they were essential. Mm -hmm. um, what were it, your drugs it, of choice? Uh, stimulants and uh, I could get amphetamines and uh, LSD, uh, weed and, you know, I I'd explore, I'd started exploring as a, when I, like I said, I moved to Medford as a teenager, I started doing drugs then. There's all kinds of prescription stuff. And then in Philly, at the punk scene, there's plenty of acid. And it was kind of interesting because it wasn't just purely recreational use. Um, I, I was deluded into thinking that I was actually doing some um, work, in a sense, like in the sense of uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the mystic, I suppose his name uh, was um, Gurdjieff. And his buddy Ospensky, they were talking about searching for the miraculous. Who who were these people? Are these the gurus or people on the yeah, scene or what? I mean, they, who, I don't they, know. Who they, they were they were available and I guess they were uh, popular. 
coming out of the new age of the 60s, uh, in the 70s, there's uh, talking about hardcore spirituality, uh, developing spiritual aspects of yourself and realizing your true self, your core self, and so on. And uh, uh, I thought that um, using uh, LSD and so on was a way to uh, accelerate it. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason why I chose the to get involved with that cult of uh, Nitran Shoshu, which some of, you know, a few handful of Ruin fans know that uh, a number of the band, uh, band members in Ruin were involved and active as members of a lay organization called Nitran Shoshu of America, which was the um, satellite to the Japan uh, religious Japanese religious sect of Buddhism that was, I suppose, founded by a man, a 13th century monk in Japan named Nitran Daishonin, and apparently his teachings survived through the modern age, through to the modern age, through the 60s, and I think it was probably something that you know the hippies really embraced. Because it was very easy, and it was like really laid out for you what you had to do. All you had to do was chant, and you would realize your dreams. So that, that was it. I mean, there's a lot more. That was the debate. How much money did you have to give to the group or you know the organization? A nominal to... fee. Right. A nominal. You you the same amount that you would give to the Church of Subgenius. Okay. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, right. So so there wasn't. If you want true slack, just pay up. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. <laughs> it wasn't. It, so it wasn't a profit-driven organization, you know, like a lot of religious cults. Money winds up getting funneled back to an individual or group of individuals, and you know, the enlightenment is kind of doled out in in pieces for a price. Was that right. not the way that that worked? Um, it, it may have had some of those elements. It may have uh, been somebody trying to rip off people and exploit their need for uh, answers. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe some people profited from it and they lived luxurious lifestyles uh, uh, because of it, because of the money flowing in. But I also think that um, it's, it's so, it served a number of purposes for, for a lot of people that were without direction, without uh, belong, feeling like they could belong to a group, be a, a social group or an ethnic group or whatever. They just felt like alone, you know? And uh, they were dissatisfied with what they were given. So they looked for an alternative. And that, I think that provided the means for it because they had um, community centers. Mm-hmm. People get together. We'd have meetings. We'd, we'd do things, you know. There were, there were activities to do. So it wasn't just getting together for a church uh, sermon. What sort of activities would you be doing? We'd sing songs. We'd do the, there was a drill team. There's the ladies auxiliary corps, like the wax, I guess, you know, it's and like, what, what are they, what are they doing for the It's like, day? it's for all those people that, that, that skipped high school, right? You know, it's like, here's your chance. Here's a second chance. You yeah. can go to pep rallies. You know? uh, yeah. yeah and <laughs> you no can do this. Fun of you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, but at the same time, it also provided, um, uh, a discipline. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it provided, um, a promise of hope. In that if you do something, if you discipline yourself and you do something daily with this means, that you will change your life drastically mm-hmm. and in, a, in an accelerated way. Yeah. So, 
Now, I find this that it's kind of curious to me because the, the ideals of this group uh, and what this group is, is built around seem to be in contrast to this punk thing that you were interested in. You've kind of got like the, the furious, the filth and the fury, say, of punk. Yeah. And you've got this, and which is a rejection of 60s ideals. Yeah. And then you have this thing that this seems to be very clearly 60s derived, or at least reached the peak of its popularity then. So it's, how do these two things come together in your head when you've got this you know, the, the violence of punk, and mm -hmm. then you've got this far more spiritual yearning, um, you know, in, in this group that you're a part of. I think for a number of us, um, well, for myself, I can speak for myself, is that I thought all the problems that I was finding as a growing into adulthood were, were insurmountable. I, I wasn't going to fix them. And then I think that, how do I cope with it? Well, with the way I was raised, I, it was inappropriate. It wasn't uh, effective. And uh, I, I guess I was just looking for um, a means that was, uh, how, do, how do you say it? say as an alternative, I suppose. Uh, I, I'm trying to get to the point of your question. Uh, I guess it, there's a similarity, there's a um, symbiosis there because with punk, it was like, reject what was previous. And same thing with this Neutron Shoshu, it was, I was rejecting what was previous, which was a Catholic upbringing or a Christian upbringing. So, if so you, you raised, call were you it, raised Catholic? If you want to call it upbringing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Upbringing seems to be kind of in quotes or, or in yeah. question, yeah. So it, it does kind of provide, I guess, in a sense of family structure as well. I mean, kind of a positive, right, right. you know, you're welcome, you're appreciated, yeah. you know, you're important to us, whereas in the biological family you're probably hearing none of that right definitely yeah. alienated from everything else you know my high school family and the same thing i mean that's why i think with punk it drew a lot of folks like that that were lost and alienated it was kind of like the default place to go you know if you're into rock and roll i mean it was like i don't know probably uh, we we're all misfits and we got yeah. together but that doesn't mean we could create a community I right. think I think many of us attempted that, mm -hmm. and uh, I think there were some successes, you know. So I, I have to say that at least, you know, in, mm -hmm. in hindsight. But I think with the Buddhism, uh, with this this particular cult, as I call it now, uh, it was a means. It was something like I I knew I wanted to be an activist. I wanted to be somebody that was doing something to promote social change for the better. Mm -hmm. And this seemed like it's a cut. Cut to the chase. You got to deal with your spirit, man. It's like, right, right. take care of your core and it'll radiate out into mm -hmm. everything you do. You know what I mean? If you're a miserable bitch and you're trying to get some political change going on, you're just going to be that toxic element into that effort to make change. It's not going to happen. You right. need to get together, you know? Do you want more? What? Do you want more? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, all right, yeah. yeah. Uh, hold on. I'm curious about your experiences with LSD. Were you were using the LSD kind of in tandem with the spirituality to kind of move further in that direction? Right, right, and, right. Yeah, I mean, did you like, find that to be an effective tool to I that think, end? I think it was. Um, and I don't really know how much of an effect it was. I'm, I'm even... The jury's still out that it, it, it made... Uh, it, was some, it was some help. Um... Because I think a lot would ha 
a lot of what happened with those experiences, since I can't train, you know, I can't convey what happened with my conscious mind or so, or with my limited means of expression, uh, I think something happened there. I think it helped uh, bring about it. it uh, what can you say? I think it was a help for my efforts to try to undo what I had been given from my parents, from my church, from my school, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So you can you can attribute you can give it some credit in a sense. You know, yeah. That it, it had a beneficial effect. You yeah. Know, through, through the process. But it's also, you know, it's a, there's a danger with that that I I, 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 I was susceptible to and then I, I, I was prone to, I yeah, I gave in. I became an addict, you know I mean? It's like, and when you're an addict, that means the first priority of your life is to get your drugs. Mm-hmm. Everything else is next in line, you know? So I, I did get to that point where uh, I wanted that comfort of drugs first and foremost. And... That wasn't very um, helpful for, you know, my other pursuits of wanting to change the world for the better or be a successful rock star. You know. Yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're a, if you're in effect working for the substance, you're probably not doing anything else very effectively. Well, when when did that, that come about? Like, when did this become something that was a serious issue rather than you know fun stuff to do? Um. What do you mean? Oh, well, like, you mean as far as being a, a problem where I had to go to rehab, or just like when? When did when did your using of these substances become an addiction? Hmm. Um, I guess towards uh, mid eighties. Mid eighties. Initially, I started out. I was performing at shows, straight, clean and sober. I mean, I didn't like to take drugs or anything while I was doing performances. But towards the end there. I be ended up uh, coming to gigs, and I'm still got that residue from the acid, you know, being up the night before and still glowing with that stimulant that comes along with the acid that was available at the time. Wait, what do you? Hmm? What do you? The stimulant that, that came along with the acid. I don't know what you. Yeah. Oh, there was this with the kind of acid that was around then. There was also a stimulant factor or an element of stimulants mm-hmm. in it. So it was like it wasn't like mushrooms where. You take mushrooms and it's over in six hours. This was, you take your acid, you have a peak, and you're still coming down like 10 hours later after you, you first take it, and it's because it's got a stimulant in it. I don't know what it was. So were the, were the psychedelic elements still there what, while you were coming down for all those hours, or was a it a physical bit. sensation? More a little of a bit. Okay. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. It was definitely an altered state of, of consciousness, or it definitely altered my perspective or perception. Right, right. Yeah, but so. clearly, I mean, you weren't addicted to acid, right? It's just the drugs in general. I mean, stimulants, uh, weed, whatever I could get a hold of. So it wasn't, I just, I knew I didn't like the, the depressants, the kind of stuff that knocked you out. I wasn't much of a drinker. I would drink to come down. Um, so it, it had all those problems, I guess, with doing cocaine later. And it got to be a mess where... Um, my bandmates say, hey, you know, <laughs> you got a problem, man. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I got into a rehab and uh, discovered that the drugs was the least of my problems. <laughs> <laughs> that was a marvelous discovery. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, oh, wow. So it's all, it was all a prog- process, it seemed like, you know, with the Buddhism thing. It kind of worked in a sense because uh, it got me to the point where, uh, you know, I guess it's like that thing where... Uh, the road to wisdom, no, excess leads, 
What's the? Do you, maybe you know. You're a reader. Uh, <laughs> uh, the the road to wisdom is lined paved with excess. I don't. Yeah, I don't know the like exact. That, right? yeah, 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 I know yeah, what, you, what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, with the Buddhism, I undid my Catholicism and Christianity thing, and also got to see that organized religion is a bunch of. You know, and it was like people use it to profit for their own means. And, you know, it has some value in some ways, but you can get that through other means that not necessarily religious. I don't know. So, you know, and then with the asset and everything. But so, yeah. Um, and then I got to that point where uh, I realized there was more to address than, than, I, than I was aware of. Yeah. Yeah. That was good stuff. Cause, uh, and then I'm doing this rock and roll thing at the same time <laughs> and putting it out all into the lyrics and into the performance you know I guess, it, I guess it at least makes for a chaotic uh, performance or at least something that people you know is visually going to be stimulating if you're really wired and I think that's what I, I think that's what I, I uh, conveyed I think that's why people got into it I don't because I was trying to wonder why the hell Ruin was uh, getting some billing better than other bands at the time. I was like wondering what the hell Ruin was giving that other bands weren't giving. Mm -hmm. And I, and, uh, I'll sound pompous or whatever, but I think it's because we actually threw ourselves into it and we were channeling that crap, man. And, man some other bands are doing it, I'm sure. You know, you could sense it, you know, where it's like they're taking it to a level beyond just performance. I mean, rock and roll is fine if you just want to rock and roll, singing about the party and then having a good time. That's part. That's good too. But then there was some things like I mean, what the Stooges did. You know what I mean? He's like when he sang his death trip song. You know the death trip thing. I mean, who else? I mean, that's not like Alice Cooper doing it. It's make believe with Iggy. It sounded like he was for real. Like he's. He, he was at the door of death, yeah, you know, yeah. or something. Yeah, and you know I guess the mean? people that that's going to speak to are going to be a unique group of people. And when they're gathered together, you've got this kind of really tumultuous kind of creative group of people because they're not the regular <laughs> folks. It's saying something to people like you and to other, you know, kind of like weirdos. Yes. And they're, and they're all... And I imagine that Ruin kind of probably did the same thing. It's going to have an especial appeal to people who are looking for that. And they're probably people who are going to be kind of tuned in to different stuff or more sensitive or you know, more fucked up or whatever, you know, exactly. depending on the individual. I think you, um, you nailed it there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, because it, it got to a point where it wasn't like, okay, I'm in the band, we go do these shows. It was like, I'm part of this experience, you know. I just happen to be the singer in this band at these shows where something else is going on. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, like the audience ooh, is a contributing factor. In that. And this is a very particular audience who's going to be drawn to this. Sort That's of thing. it. Yeah. That's it. I think once I got wind of it, it's like, oh yeah, and then we're all getting together and, and sharing that vibe. Maybe we were giving each other an exorcism or something, you know, during some of those shows. Because it seemed like it didn't matter about what we were doing musically or anything. It just it just seemed like it was the experience, what people brought to it, and what they brought to the mosh pit, and just the whole night of just like stewing in this toxicity or whatever, I suppose, and people trying to get um, uh, rise above it, you know. Mm -hmm. well, I guess we should go back a little bit because we're uh, kind of talking about ruin, but we haven't really discussed oh, yeah, the, the yeah. formation of the band. So, in your words, then how how does ruin come together? Um, earlier I mentioned Glenn and I knew each other in high school. Glenn's brother, Damon Wallace, uh, plays guitar. 
he plays it upside down. He's left-handed. And he would, uh, he and his brother Glenn would play guitar and bass, or guitars, and I would sing along with them. I would write lyrics on the fly, or maybe uh, Glenn had a few lines or two, and we'd create songs like that in the 70s, in suburban homes, um, bedrooms or whatever. Well, that early on, what did you feel like you, you wanted to be saying? Because you were talking about how you know these bands that you liked were in contrast to the mainstream rock bands. So then what yeah. did you want to say when given the opportunity to kind of speak out to other people? I was right. I was back then. I was like seventeen or eighteen. Uh, I wrote this song called "After the Holocaust." What you gonna do when the world is lost after the Holocaust? So this is a nuclear holocaust that, yeah. at the time, always seemed to be like two minutes away. Exactly. Yeah, it yeah. was always looming. I was having these nightmares about this nuclear holocaust, and just like, fuck, we were scared. You know, it was like we didn't know what the hell was going on. That President Nixon was a crook and. And uh, the Russians had nukes, and it was going to be an end of us all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, stuff like that 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 made uh, that was a concern of to me. I mean, I figure uh, I could have maybe sung about relationships or something, or trying to get girls, but I probably wasn't good at it. Mm-hmm. And I figured other people were doing it. I mean, the cars you had the cars. What the hell? Or the romantics? I yeah, think. Yeah. They did it. Yeah, they got those bases are covered. Yeah, so, yeah. okay, what else were we going to sing about? Hmm, what was Iggy, what's Alice and New York Dolls singing about? What the MC5 singing about, you know? And uh, that's why I try to, they said, yeah, what's what's my concern? You know, probably others feel the same concern. I know there must be others. I mean, I got to Philly, and I'm finding out there are other people that were, you know, trying to find others that were alienated and and. and not really interested in, in in pursuing what was being offered. I mean, uh, you could have gone to college, and some of my friends were going that way, but they also felt like that wasn't happening. They wanted something else to go on. And uh, But anyway, yeah, so I got to Philly, and I didn't get in a band with Glenn right away. I saw an audition available for a band. It was like... Uh, and I, I, saw, I went to the audition, they liked me. I was singing uh, nursery rhymes to their music. Yeah, liar, liar, pants on fire. But, you know, they said, oh, yeah, you're the guy. You know? And what was this band called? Uh, Sensory Fix. Mm-hmm. And if I stuck with them, I probably could be retired by now. Did they, would, did they go on to it? Well, they could have. I think okay. they had the commercial potential. Right. They could have been like, um, at that time anyway... I was 22, 23, and they were 17, 18, 19, maybe. Mm-hmm. So, so you were the elder statesman. Right, but, but I was still young looking, and yeah. we were all like young looking, good looking guys. Yeah, and yeah. We could have, you know, made the. Uh, they were, we were photogenic. Mm-hmm, so we right. could have exploited that, you know, yeah, yeah. maybe. And well, maybe what happened? That's a commercial success or something. I, 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 <laughs> I loved what they were doing. They were kind of funky, post punk. Mm-hmm. But then Glenn was getting his thing with Ruin. Man. And Hardcore came around. Right. And Glenn turned me on to that. You need to get that? No, no, no. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. I can't turn so, it on. So uh, I'm like, I loved what I was doing with those guys. They were really good. It was post-punk. It was still that punk feel. I was still rock. And I was still singing about things that concerned me uh, beyond, you know, what else was being offered. And uh, 
But something was missing, and uh, when Glenn did his thing, I saw him and his brother play with a couple other guys at the Eastside Club. Mm-hmm. And it just like, whoa, blew me away. Totally yang energy. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, this is stripped down. This was like, if you want to get to the root of it, this was it. This yeah. was, and, and I didn't realize what Glenn was checking out hardcore. Mm-hmm. He was loving hardcore. And other bands, I think like Discharge or The yeah. Exploiter or something. Yeah, yeah. So he was bringing that, and I was like, whoa, this is it, man. This is like fucking Dada, shake up, rattles people's cages, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Me, I was like trying to, I was like 20-something. I was trying to get girls and shit, you know, crooner if yeah. I could, while being a little bit of punk rock. And then uh, I said, yeah, but that's really what moves me. Cordy, uh, bass player, he was like floundering. He didn't know if he wanted to continue with college. He was he had done some bands since he was sixteen. He'd have been playing in clubs and so on. But he was kind of jaded. And then he ran into Glenn. I, I told him he should meet Glenn. I think they ended up meeting each other at Temple. Uh Glenn I think was studying some religious studies class, Cordy and philosophy. So of course they had a lot to chat about. Right, right. And then, you know, Cordy was all disillusioned about everything. He's like only 20, maybe. Jaded to 20. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know he lived his life, you know. It was like, and then he's in school checking out philosophy. You're fucking really messing his head up, I'm sure. And uh, so, but he heard what Glenn was doing. And Cordy had seen me play in Sensory Fix. So he, he, he really admired what I was doing. He says, you know Bosco? Man, we should get Bosco to play with our band. So Cordy convinced me. He said, yeah, man, I got an aunt who lives in Seattle. We'll go tour there. We'll blow those fuckers away. You know, I was like... It sounds like a plan. Yeah, he was all about, like, blowing people away and, and taking it to the next level. Sensory fix are good, you know. They're, they sound good, but don't you want a, a little more, you know... <laughs> I don't know what it was, but I knew that was, like I said, the yang energy. Yeah. And it was appropriate at the time, I think, being in my early 20s, kind of wanting things to happen, things to change, you know, wanting mm-hmm. things to move along and didn't want to be pussyfooting, I suppose. Right, no pussyfooting. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, so then you wind up coming together as Ruin then, right? Yeah, so I, yeah. I left my sensory fixed band and they were going, Lee Paris was touting us, we opened up for Robert Hazard from the hundreds of people, you know, maybe a thousand, yeah. I don't know. Robert Hazard had that hit with the, uh, we're riding on an escalator. He's also oh, known. Escalator of life. Uh, shopping in the human mall. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. He also wrote the song for Sydney Lauper. Uh, Girls just want to have fun. Okay, yeah. So he had some, I guess, exposure on MMR. So if I would have stayed on that route, and we, if we would have uh, honed it down to be a little more radio friendly, mm-hmm. I think we could have had some success. But uh, I decided to say, fuck that, man. I just want to fucking rock and... Rock the world, man. Rock reality, you mm-hmm. know. It was it's beyond rock and roll, man. I wasn't old. I, I, of course, I wanted to be a rock star. Who wouldn't, right? At that time, yeah. I thought, you know, being where I was, the way, what I was coming out of. But at the same time, I also wanted to go beyond that, and that's what like punk rock was saying to me. Like Johnny Rotten was saying, like, yeah, I'm using this as a vehicle for now, but really what I want is anarchy, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just happen to use this vehicle of rock music, you know what I mean? But yeah, eventually yeah. we're going to get to the real, we're going to get to the uh, Oh, and it's still coming, there. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> just around the corner with that guy. Right. 
so from the from the onset of, of Rune, were you always projecting the, the Buddhist image, or was that something that, that came about a little ways into the band? Uh, by that time, I had been pretty much involved. Even before I joined Ruin, I was, I was heavily active with that. And that gave me a sense of um, fulfillment that I was actually doing something. Because mm -hmm. part of the, the drill was you go out in the street, talk to strangers, and invite them to a meeting at your home where we discuss things. And um, so I felt like that was going on. I was in, things were happening for me. I was feeling better. I was having a positive outlook on life and felt like I was doing something. And uh, it ha just so happened that Glenn was heavily involved in it because he's the one that told me about it. He got his brother into it. He got Cordy into it. Before we know, we're a band of Buddhists, you know? So all the members of the band are, are on board. Except for Rich Hutchins. Right. And what was his feeling? He, he was it? tolerant of it. But I think, um, like I said, we were young and stupid. I didn't say stupid before, but actually we were young, stupid, and naive. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to give us some credit, you know what I mean? But at the same time, we were a bit naive. Even though we had some savvy about a lot of things. It's still, I mean, you're in your 20s. Right. Well, do you, do you think that your involvement with, a, you'll say now, a cult, has it had a, any adverse effect on you? It, it doesn't seem like you really, you know, were mistreated in some way or, or no, it, no. it negatively affected you. No, no, I don't think it did. I think um, it was very beneficial. It helped me grow. It helped me grow. It got to see, it showed me possibilities, you know, that I didn't have to settle for what was given to me or what I, you know, settled for what people thought I could expect. Right. Well, what precipitated you making a break with the organization and moving away from it? Drugs. No, uh, just getting a little more savvy and checking out other things like um, theosophy, uh, occultism, and finding out that there are other people exploring this in other ways. Mm -hmm. And that it, there wasn't just one way to do it, one religion or a means there wasn't one means and there's a variety of ways to do pursue that and develop that aspect of mm -hmm. yourself okay you know i mean basically it's it, you got to meditate and you got to do yoga if you're not going to do those things you're going to have to sell for what you get what you get you know what i mean yeah. if you want to if you want to try to get the most out of life maybe consider meditation Definitely consider yoga. Otherwise, do you do these things now still? Fits and you... starts. Okay. Fits and starts. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Sometimes, like right now, I haven't done yoga for months. You know, I, I know was hoping I... you put your legs over your head by the end right, of the right, interview. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> but everybody's, I, I think that's, that's crucial. Something physical and something where, it's, where you shut your mind off. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, I, I run every day. And I think if I didn't run, I'd probably yeah. be a really miserable person because it causes so much positivity to kind of like physically move through my anatomy and you know my thoughts to have much more clarity that uh without it i'd probably be really aggressive and a bigger pain in the ass i think it helps with your alignment doesn't it yeah yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. i mean your whole being is your physical your mental who knows what your emotional definitely yeah. but who knows if we have a spirit or whatever but i think it's all they're all um interrelated yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you feel a tangential result, I mean, if you feel, I feel better from running, therefore yeah. I do it. The spiritual yeah. element, don't give a fuck about. Uh, right. For me personally. It doesn't matter. All I know is that when I do this, I feel this way. So I continue doing the thing that makes me feel good and not the thing that makes me feel shitty. And I don't have to as ascribe like a greater meaning to it because it just works. 
And that's yeah. and I think that might be healthy. Yeah. Because when you start ascribing a greater meaning to it, I think you're gonna run in some uh, difficulties there. Yeah. yeah. Like the, like illusions. when people do yoga, the physicality of it mm-hmm. appeals to me. Yeah. But when it's talking about your spirit <laughs> or lift, like all of that, this just seems like a bunch of bullshit that humans yeah. made up, you know, to it make is. themselves feel better because they're insignificant specks in the world. I agree. Yeah, and they're gonna die probably real fucking soon. It's and that's you know people want to avoid that, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anything, any kind of wall between them and the great black darkness, you know, any kind of hope that they're like, <laughs> there's so much more important than that, and they'll go on to another form. Oh my gosh! It's nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's cute. It's nice. It makes right. you feel better. But it might bring some comfort yeah, temporarily. Just, yeah, just made up by humans to make other humans it is. feel better. It is, uh, man. And and I think that the people want to make it like something external out there or out of reach. When really, who knows what the fuck is out of reach or out there? Maybe there isn't. So, you know, what it's all about. If running makes you feel good, if yoga makes you feel good. Yeah, or why meditation do you have to throw, or whatever. Yeah. Throw, why do you have to throw that extra shit onto it? Yeah, yeah. I mean? Extra shit just seems superfluous. Like, <laughs> yeah. who cares? Uh, right. But I guess it works yeah. for some folks. Well, anyways, ruin. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, band exists. Um, mm, how how did you feel that the Philadelphia was reacting to you early on? You know, when you came around, like what bands were on the scene? How were people reacting to to Ruin? You know, as a young band, very receptive. Mm-hmm. That, so right right away, people are are locked in on it. Oh, and that's what I loved when I moved from Medford to Philly. It's like I I came into this town. The punk rock thing is already happening. There's a, a number of bands and and exploring different ways of of taking the punk ethos, the do-it-yourself thing, and, and they're exploring their various avenues. I mean, you had the Stickman doing their funk-punk thing, you had the Bunny Drums doing their post-punk synth thing, and then the Executive Slacks doing their dada s synth thing, and just yeah, serial killers, yeah, the Why Die. Oh, no, they came a little later, Why Die, yeah, I'm thinking. But, I mean, it was like this punk rock thing, uh, I, I fuck. I went off into a tangent there. Well, one of the things I wanted to bring up is I talk about this in some of the interviews, uh, where there was never really a Philadelphia sound. There's a Philadelphia punk scene, but mm-hmm. all these bands sound really different from each other. And I think that this kind of worked to Philly's advantage, and that you had really unique bands, and then worked to Philly's disadvantage because there wasn't a sound that everybody gravitated towards, like DC sound, right. New York hardcore, you know, East yeah. Bay pop punk or something like that. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So that's what it was. I mean, it was like uh, so Philly ha- things were happening. Who had some world class acts, and when I got involved with performing or going to the shows, I felt very welcome. People were very welcome to me. It was like I was coming home, and then the bands I was in. They say, hey, this is, yeah, you got something. Keep going. I mean, when when Pete Baker of the Stickman saw me in Sensory Fix and gave me, you know, like a pat on the back, mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, man, that means it all. Because yeah. I had been going to his his band's shows as, you know, since I can, since the 70s, I was like out there sweating and shit, dancing to their music. So it was like very receptive scene. I, I don't know. I felt very welcome in all all the aspects of it being the uh, the sh- the stuff with the art scene we had um, that's what, that was the thing the seventies was coming out of I guess the hippies so and then there, then there was punk um, and so there was a lot of diversity and, and the arts were involved too artistic people I mean mm-hmm. and um, so that was it seemed like. Um, 
it, it fostered that type of create uh, a variety of creativity and so on. And um, so there's a lot of different ways to express yourself and get your stuff out there. Uh, I was disappointed when it started narrowing down to like there was uh, there are a lot of bands saying, "Oh, we're hardcore." Mm-hmm. And Glenn was getting into that. This was before I got into it. Uh, but I went to the hardcore shows, and I was like, "Yeah, man, this is this is this this is the shit right here, man. There's no pretense. This is all right. stripped about. down, stripped down Pure in your face, yeah, yeah. boom." And uh, I had to hand it to him for that. And I said, "Yeah, maybe I should go that way." But at the same time, I was also disappointed that it narrowed, people put blinders on and they weren't as tolerant to people exploring other things. So there was like an unspoken thing where. If you were going to a hardcore show, you only liked hardcore, and you had looks hardcore, and to talk about other things, maybe it wasn't um, so welcome. You know yeah. what so I mean? people make tinier and tinier boxes for themselves, yeah. even though they're supposed to be breaking out. Yeah. They're kind of making themselves really, really tiny. Yeah, it was, it was disappointing. I was hoping that it would, it would have been a little more diverse and eclectic, and that's where I was headed. I mean, I was doing... Things. There's this thing on XPN called the Experimental Radio Project, hosted by Tom Dora and friends. Why don't you explain a little bit about what that was? In the 70s through the mid-80s, I think, um, on WXPN, the University of Pennsylvania radio station, uh, there was a late-night show that came on in the wee hours, uh, hosted by Tom Dora, and he would invite friends uh, to come on to the come to the station and also to call in on the phone and send in tapes of their material, be it spoken word, music, or whatever. And then he would play it all. He'd be the DJ, master of ceremonies. Mm-hmm. People come in as tea time for tea for Tom or Tom with tea or something like that. And I'd be listening somewhere remotely and people having tea and talking about shit on the radio. And I said, yeah, man, I know what they're talking about. And uh, eventually, you know, within a year or two, I ended up, you know, being on that show and giving my music or my experimental music to to their shows. So I was I was disappointed in that um, that didn't flourish more. That there wasn't more of um, an eclecticism. It became narrow, which I guess it had its it had its reasons. I don't know, but hardcore got really narrow, and the sound got narrow, and it got generic. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And then there's varying degrees of what it meant to be hardcore. Some people were, or to be punk even, you know. There's some people thought it was all about the exterior, the superficial, how you looked, mm-hmm. you know. And they really put a lot of time into it. And they, they, you know, they look good in the photos and so on. Right, right. Uh, and there's people just like, it's all, you know, they're just all straight edge, you know, or, uh, uh, you know, the fascist, the skinheads and yeah. so on. Yeah, it just, it seemed, it was very uncomfortable. So I was becoming alienated from those I was sharing the stage with or sharing the club with, you know, mm-hmm. or sharing the pit with. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it seemed like that there was some point, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that Ruin maybe started to, wanted to distance himself from the scene to a certain degree. Because it seems like initially there's a symbiotic relationship, you know, punks come to the shows, you guys are interested in that music, and it that's your primary audience. But yeah. maybe towards the latter part of the band, there's uh, wanting to kind of move away from being referred to as a punk or a hardcore band and being something else outside of that. 
Yeah, well, I guess we were always, before we got into being embraced by the hardcore scene. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We Individually and also musically, I think we're always about um, being uh, expansive or uh, exploring different avenues. I mean, we're coming up, we're all like in the 70s stuff and then hardcore is all about you know being really fast and i don't know what the heck was going on with the lyrics man i couldn't i don't know it was just it was becoming uh i think we we love the we love the elements of hardcore and in the music i suppose with the fast fast paced and still being punk without being metal and all that um but at the same time, we were always about, you know, being, uh, I can't, what's the word of it? A little more diverse yeah, in what we are doing. Yeah, yeah, Eclectic, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so it was kind of frustrating because every time we would do something different, like a folky tune, mm-hmm. uh, if we were doing Leonard Cohen straight or maybe uh, Erzat's Leonard Cohen straight, just folky guitar, and that's when people would just start chatting among themselves mm-hmm. or... If we were at a club, that's when people go to the bar or whatever. Yeah. They're just waiting for the, the rock and roll. Yeah, so they can jump on each other's heads. And, and yeah, 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 yeah. But it seems like even still d- down the years, you know, when you when you did the, the reunion show some years ago and then the one you recently did, it's still like a primarily punk sort of scene. Audience is going to come out to see you play. You know? Yeah. Including yeah. people who are much older now but were identified with that, you know, in, in their youth. And then young people yeah. who, you know, have... A lot of the, you know, the trappings of punk, you know, yes. at least, are still coming out to see this band, you know, your band. I was really surprised. Yeah. I was really surprised, yeah. Well, before we go into that, let's, we'll go yeah. into sort yeah. of like, what then, what kills Ruin? You know, you do, you do these records, you seem to uh-huh. be, you know, moving along pretty well. What then leads to the end, the demise of the band? I guess, uh, personally, I think I was spoiled. I mean, like I said, I came to Philly... Is very. I was very. Uh, got a great reception with whatever I do with the social. I, mean, I was meeting friends. I was getting these gigs and performing, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, things were happening easily for me. It seemed like I didn't have to put much work into it. You know. What sort of work were you doing at the time? Like, what was your? Did you have a job, or were you in Career, school, or a convenience store, or wherever I could get it? And then I mentioned. Uh, I found out I could get jobs in clubs. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was doing coat check or bar back in various clubs. Right, right. Easy money, you yeah. know, short hours, late Yeah, probably lots of work. under the table. Yeah. You know, to bother with insurance or uh, paying taxes and crap like that. That's right, yeah. Right. And, uh, hmm. Well, the, we're talking about like the end of the, like what made the, the band wind down in the mid 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, then I, I saw that we started getting a glimpse of what the industry was like. Uh, we got a hold of a producer that was looking for a hardcore punk band to make some commercially viable, something that he could exploit to make some money. He wanted to make him a name for himself as a producer. Mm-hmm. He was an engineer at a, a notable studio that had people like Bon Jovi come in, you know? Yeah. And he says... Hey, I have this opportunity. The studio is going to give me some time. I could be a producer. Who's the hardcore? Who's the punk band that's happening now? He found out about us. He gave us a glimpse as to what's involved. He got. We started seeing what the industry was about. If you want to make a living at it, mm-hmm. it was just a bunch. It was just 
you know, you have to do this compromising. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to cater to a certain uh, audience or cater to the radio stations or whatever. And you have to do a certain amount of gigs. You, you, you start modifying your material to be a little more accessible. Right. Say, hey, you know, I love the spirit, love the passion. But, you know, if you put a little bit of this on this list, lead guitar here, you might reach a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Don't you want that anyway? Yeah. Do you really guys want to just settle for these, like, uh, basement shows or these, um, something like this, these benefit shows? Don't you want to get some radio airplay on MMR or yeah. something? So maybe? whatever elements were a part of your mix that appealed to people effectively get removed and get replaced with, <laughs> with the other elements, which is not why anyone paid any attention to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, uh, you know, it was tempting, and we started to see it became. Uh, I can't imagine like what people do on Broadway or in the theater where they get a show, right, and have to do the same thing over every night. Yeah, yeah. I was like, when I was doing a show, I didn't. Maybe I need to learn my craft better. I learned maybe I could have used some actor classes, acting classes, to help me learn how to deal with the emotions that I would bring up at a show in order. To convey what I want to put out there for for the audience mm-hmm. and so on like that. Instead, I was just becoming miserable because I was like digging down and allowing these negative emotions to come through in my song. You know what I mean? I was like, and maybe I should. I you know, being punk, it wasn't um, the best idea. Maybe I could learn how to hone it. And uh, rein it in more, like as though the, instead of letting them be wild horses and hoping whatever comes out was good enough, you know, because mm-hmm. it was emotionally draining for me. What I would come up with in the shows, like a lot of it was theatrical, a lot of it was very real, you know. It was just like bringing up all these demons, man, and it was just like. I but was, it was working because the audience is reacting to it. So, I mean, it yeah, may be killing you, but yeah. like the audience is clearly you know, reacting well to this performance that you're putting out there. Right. But after a while, then, and then it got to be where I was going through the motions on some of the mm-hmm. gigs yeah. because it was night, night after night and we hadn't been working on new material. And we were on the road and it just seemed like going through the motions. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what I... And we were, I don't think any of us were really into going through the motions. We wanted to make each time something special. We wanted to rock and roll. And I, I guess we we're saying, hey, man, maybe we don't want to rock and roll as, as a career, you know, because it's not really what we want to do. And at that time, I think in our mid-20s, we were thinking, yeah, maybe we'll go back to school or maybe pursue this, this course of study, uh, this, this route or whatever, to further do what we really want to do mm-hmm. and maybe this musical vehicle thing um has run its course otherwise it'll just become another factory job and it, it'll lose it and it'd be it wouldn't be satisfying yeah the half-life on vitality for bands tends to be really small uh so you get this really bright spark and then you know it either ends or it just f- f- continues to fizzle yeah. And uh, it's probably a good idea to cut it out before you get to the fizzle part. Yeah, because maybe we would have fizzled. I mean, ideally, I, I would think I would take vocal lessons. Uh, the guitarists would have learned more and we would have been more radio friendly or whatever like that. I played that game and 
to consider making a progressive rock record? You know? <laughs> Maybe moving into new Not with age. those guys. Not those guys. Glenn doesn't like prog rock at all. God, never, I, I try to get him into it. The math rock or whatever. He doesn't want any of that. It's too much, too much Ramones in his blood. You know? Right. Yeah. So in the wake... So did the band members remain friendly with each other when the band came apart? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Uh, off and on. I mean, we probably... Yeah. But everybody went their separate ways and pursued different yeah. things. So what, where did you wind up going? What was the direction that you went in post-band? Uh, oh, I had a son. Okay. And I was like, surprise, surprise, you're a dad. And uh, I decided, instead of like trying to avoid that, uh, I decided to embrace that and become, uh, I said, well, what skill set do I have? How can I make some money and also care for my son, help out his mom, who I wasn't with, but I, I respected and admired, and I said, okay, oh, I'll, fuck it, man. I'll raise the sun. Mm-hmm. So I just modified my life to uh, make sure that he got what he needed. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't want to give him what I got or right. yeah. what I didn't get. You yeah. know what I mean? So I said, fuck, man, I wouldn't want to do that to me. Let me see, let me see if I can change this cycle, you know, that's going on here with my my family. I guess you know that you can't do any worse than your father, you know, moving into a situation like that. That would be fucking impossible. That's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. So anything that you do positive has got to be better than, you know, what you came through. Yes. And, and it also helps me to grow and, and to find out what I went through and also make modifications on me mm-hmm. as well as learning to how to raise somebody, you know, yeah. and contribute to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel that that... It was worth giving my time into that, even though I, um, well, I, I, like I said, I, I guess I probably got to it. I don't like working that much at anything. I'm kind of lazy. so well, you, didn't, it, you didn't move into any other bands post-Ruin? I, fits and starts. I tried a few things and uh, played some gigs here and there, but nothing re- had the same kind of uh, uh, impact. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing. Okay. It was a lot of fun, but nothing, nothing as much as them. Yeah, so that was good. And then uh, these fuckers, they wanted to do it again, man. Yeah, that's what I want to. As we kind of move towards the end, I wanted to talk a little bit about the the show that happened. This was over Labor Day weekend of this year, twenty thirteen. Um, good timing. Yeah, two shows uh, that Ruin performed: the Secret Show, which was at Dobbs, right? Yeah, and, yeah, and then the Uni Transfer show, which was the the big one. Um, so then, what what were the ideas coming into this thing? Like, why why did the group decide to do uh, another set of shows after so many years since the last time? I think you had something to do with it because you had asked us to do. I forget what you you getting in touch with us about your your upcoming Loud Fast and Philly. Yeah, the original version of this thing was there was supposed to be a film film element and I wanted to do a live music thing. So there was the guy who was making the documentary about Ruin. I don't know whatever happened to the documentary. That's right. That's and right. if I could get at least a piece of that footage, then I would be able to have the band play live if the band wanted to do a live show. But there needed to be some kind of film thing and the guy who made, was making that documentary... Uh, turned out to not be able to provide that um and then there was issues with venues and money and stuff like that and and then later i heard and i don't want to that's I need right to remove that's right but, yeah. so you, you you were the spark you were like kind of like the kindling wood there like 
get things going. Because I guess it's always in the back of their minds that uh, 96 or 97, our, our last reunion, uh, it wasn't enough for them. For me, that was uh, it was a great reunion. I think what we could offer for folks that were fans of the music then was the best we could give. And I think it was satisfying for all. But to actually do that again, uh, you know, I think you have to be, to do what I did then or to do what they did, you have to be of that certain age, you know. And once you get past that, it's, something's lacking. And mm. it's obvious. I mean, you're not 20-something anymore. And uh, there's something about being 20-something that that lends itself to whatever you put out there to folks. There's something about it, man. It's youth or... The, being naive and hopeful, hopeful and optimistic. Yeah, I think there's an earnestness. There's yeah. like a, tr- a true belief that comes through that people pick up on. Where later it maybe can be more calculating or maybe yeah. sort of nostalgic or something like that. Right. Right. Um, but I think that, like I think your show worked really well. Uh, I, I always hate reunion shows, and I almost see no bands in in a state of reunion because I my feeling is always if you saw the band when they were young and vital, yes, you're very fortunate. Yes, and if you missed it. There's a zillion other bands in that same state right now, and hey. you don't need to see the resurrected dead. So why not go exactly. see like the person that's young and vital exactly. now, and then you can tell people in the future, yeah, I saw them when they were this, you know, because everybody's got their stories. But I thought that right. you did a really great job of incorporating lots of people into yes. the thing. Yeah. So there's like this wide variety of participants in the performance, and uh, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about that. That's and. Um... I thought that was necessary, and I'm glad those guys took that and ran with that idea. Um, was it your idea to, it, to bring in other people? Pretty much. I mean, I had been kicking it around because I felt like we did all we could do. Now, if you want to do something today, what can you bring today, and who can you know? What do you? What's it really all about? I mean, and uh, I got to thinking. Like, yeah, I've been kicking around the idea, like getting other people involved to make it a more of a um, community event or a sense of community where other people are involved and on the stage and you know just like a circus thing maybe maybe a, a circus atmosphere uh, they 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 wanted to do ruin again because you know I sent them an email that you had sent me about doing this thing and maybe we were resurrected dead or whatever um, and uh, so I, I don't know. They they got that. They took that idea and said, "Hey, yeah, let's do a reunion gig." And I'm like, "Oh man, I don't know. I don't. I don't have what I had then, and what I had then was barely enough to take take on that chore." Yeah. I mean, I was trying to. I went to some of the rehearsals previous, and I was like, "How the hell did I sing all those words in in one verse?" You know. I, I, Back as a twenty-year-old, so I had a lot more lung power. Yeah, yeah. You know, and here at rehearsal, I was coughing my head off. Uh, I didn't have the stamina for it. Could you um, remember all of these lyrics too? Because I mean, some, sometimes a lot of songs, and also it was like a two-hour performance. I mean, I know you didn't sing all the songs, but ultimately, yeah. like, there was a massive performance. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think what I do is I remember. Most of the lyrics, they mm. just kind of loop over in my you head. You say it's nursery like, rhymes, you don't remember. <laughs> That's right. So uh, um, I said, suggested like getting other people at one idea, like with Glenn, 
And then uh, they said, no, no, let's let's keep it down. Let's strip it down. We'll come up with new material. Damon just wanted to do old material. I know we're kicking around all kinds of different ideas. And um, uh, at one point, I had done enough rehearsals to see that those guys were up to par. Mm -hmm. They were even better as far as musicians go and as far as doing the songs over again. Whereas I had fallen under par mm -hmm. and there's no way I was going to bring that over. And if I were an audience member going to see one of my favorite bands, I don't want to see some guy trying. You know yeah, what I yeah, mean? Yeah. So I said, uh, you know, get another vocalist. Power to you. You know what I mean? Go for it if you want to do that. And uh, I think they said, Glenn said at one point, he said, look, Tom, why don't you just come along and if you want to sing, you don't have to. Maybe a song or two, and we'll try. We'll get other vocalists involved, mm -hmm. and that's what I started doing. And then I found that I was getting uh, more involved with some of the songs. We found Justin from Northern Liberties. Uh, yeah, I think that was a great choice. I mean, I said this when we, good, when we good. did the the live event for Loudfest. Like, I thought that having him, he was really charismatic, and he really did the songs well. I think that was a great choice. Yeah, I think he's he's of the same tribe. We're different from each other, but. We're the same tribe. He likes cryptic lyrics and yeah, he's very artistic-minded, more yeah. so than being polished. Yeah, and uh, he's a lot of energy. So I was glad. I've been a fan of them, and I'm glad they got involved. And uh, I think it contributed a lot more. It made Ruin something to the next level, like or another aspect of Ruin. Because to me, it was always like I said at one point during his hardcore shows, it didn't matter what music we were doing. It seemed like it was just an event of, like, this orgy of, like, sweating and movement. And yeah, as long as whatever. enough of it was fast, then the audience was going to be satiated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so it got the... And then as it was coming along, uh, what's the called? Philly's Not Dead was talking about a documentary. Mm -hmm. The Pennsylvania Hardcore documentary was coming out. So things were coming into my radar, yeah. like, hey, you know, maybe there is something people really do want this. Because I was telling the guys, like, come on, who are we going to get to come out to see us? Maybe a couple hundred people. Didn't we do that already at the track? Didn't mm -hmm. we do this reunion show? I thought that was enough. You know what I mean? Right. If they missed it, they missed it because we can never go back to even being in our 30s, you know, right. or 40s. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, so... Uh, and then they, I said, look, get a Kickstarter. Prove to me that there's actually demand for this. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll get involved, you know? I was like, but, and uh, so then the Kickstarter thing happened, and uh, Dennis got involved, and he started networking. and He's, he's very good at that. Yeah. And he got a lot, uh, talk about community. That's why I'm glad Dennis was involved, because... He drew from another uh, a number of resources. I mean, he got artists and photographers involved and bookers and club owners. And he was getting people some action, not mm -hmm. just a band. You know what I mean? Yeah. He was getting other people involved to be create other creative people involved as well as getting the word out so that people that were into the whole scene could come out. Mm -hmm. And uh, once they start, once that started happening and, I just look at the time and it seemed like uh, the thing to do and before I know it I got possessed again and it yeah. worked yeah it, I couldn't yeah. believe it because for me preparing for that was like broad strokes like okay I'll do this but I'm not going to think too much about it and then just 
as I'll try to allow for some time for, for room for spontaneity. And that's what was cool. And then I was also very pleased in what everybody else brought to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just like, it was like what I wanted to have happen, where it was a multimedia extravaganza with people coming together from all over, from mm -hmm. back then, today, and whatever. Yeah. And that, to me, was a success, you know, no matter what I did. Yeah. You know, so I was glad to be a part of that, even though in a limited capacity that I was. Yeah, I think, well, I, I think your, your part in that was much more than a limited capacity. Uh, I think it was very significant capacity. But I think okay. it, it was just really impressive to see all those elements actually work really well together. Um, you, know, I mean, as, you know, watching from the audience... Uh, cool. It's rare to see a band come back and do something that involves that many creative elements and isn't just focused on them. You know, that yeah. there's lots of other shit going on and all of it's you know it's stimulating. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I think that that's that's kind of like the reunion show done properly. And, uh, yeah. Good. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> that's what it was about. You know, like this year's version. Yeah. You know what I mean? It wasn't like let's revisit what those guys did or. I don't know, revisit whatever. It's like, what are we doing today? Mm -hmm. And that's what I felt too. That's what I felt too. Thanks to Facebook and finding out what people are doing today and yeah, yeah. what people are going through and what they hope to have happen and so on. Yeah. So I'm glad good. to see that the records are being reissued too because when I did the interview with Glenn, it was something that after the actual interview, I was, I was really adamant about the band should reissue the records because they've been out of print for a long time that cd came out in i guess like the mid 90s maybe mid or late 90s right, right. um you know rick's not even alive anymore uh so yeah. uh and that people used to be able to get this stuff on the internet um you know on blogs and stuff you know you could download the records but a lot of those links got killed a couple of years ago um and there was there's a lot less availability of this music and like people into punk don't forget like there are crazy about the past the present and hopefully the future yeah. so i found that like all of this stuff being out of the mix was was bad you know it should come back into the mix and then you should be able to get it through itunes and you should be able to get you know a reissued lp and all this stuff because people want it and you know you created this thing that huh. still has value and should be able to you know go out to folks other than those who can afford to buy the record off of ebay or whatever yeah Hey, apparently, there's folks that, that feel the same way, and uh, they're making it happen. Yeah, I so, think it's good. Yeah, I guess so, man. It's, yeah, I mean, it's because a that's, that's your it's legacy. A I mean, like someone making a film or writing a book. I mean, you created this thing. That the, the value of it, the intellectual value or the creative value, doesn't diminish over the years, um, and the interest doesn't diminish either. Um, hmm. I'm 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 curious. To, I guess I'm too close to it to to realize that you know what's going on there and uh, what people are looking for, either from those that were involved with that scene and also those who are looking back to it, like I looked back to the beats mm -hmm. and see what they're all about, you know, what's their, their uh, mythology is all about, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because I, th I mean, I think these things get passed along through, through the ages and, and that there's going to be elements of strands of your DNA in, yeah. in Philly punk bands now because kids are going to listen to this stuff and they're going to draw something from it, maybe a little bit, maybe a lot, uh -huh. but it kind of moves on. I mean, they, in effect, become like your progeny in a way, you know, uh, and of all these fans, I mean, not just Ruin, but oh, yeah, you know, right? everybody passes on these strands of DNA that, 
you know, mutate and morph over the years, but, but some of the same elements are still in there and they move forward. And I'm glad uh, that you're bringing this up because this, I'm glad to see that there's somebody else that believes that. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> because I think that punk would be really you know boring I mean? and backwards looking if it is frozen at a particular point. So yeah. it needs to go in different directions if it's going to remain vital. Otherwise, it's like kids dressing up like hippies in the mid 80s. You know, it just seems silly and nostalgic, like doing what your parents did. Yeah. But if you've got something that somehow retains a vitality, an ethos, uh, you know, some kind of spark, then it can still speak to young people as something that's happening now, as opposed to like, let's pretend it's 1982. Fuck that's that. Right, 1982 right. was great if you were living in it, and yes. it was probably also horrible if you were living in it. Yeah. Um, right? <laughs> but in 2013, now almost 2014, you've got to be doing something that speaks of the time. And amazingly, it re retains this vitality uh, over the years. Yeah, and I'm hoping that carries through for the for the next generation, for the younger folks, the people in their twenties now. You know, to look at the core of it, I suppose. Just I remember back then looking back at uh, people like Alfred Jowry. You know, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but he was a, a French playwright who was all about shaking and rattling people's cages, and he 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 lived during the twenties. And uh, I just think about it as like everybody as their turn and like the the youth or whatever kind of like say okay here's the boulder that we got to move and they take their turns that you know each generation comes around ugh, pushes that boulder a little further yeah. off the road so that the road is yeah you know, clear yeah. yeah sometimes it rolls over on their own foot but that's <laughs> <I still laughs> fucking that happens but, too. But yeah right yeah, yeah. that's a trip man because yeah it's all part it's like all contributing we're all contributing and uh, I think a number of us, eventually there will be a critical mass and the fucked up people will be just like obsolete or irrelevant, you know what I mean? People, oh, we have to run our system this way. It's always been this way and we have to continue this way. There's always going to be a fucking middle finger sticking up right at that person, though. Yeah, I mean, you've got to at I least hope so. that. I mean, there always has been and I think that there always will be. Yeah, because yeah. because people look at the at the end result of that sort of thinking, and you you have a planet that you know is in a terrible shape. Um, so when you look at this is the way that things are done, clearly it's not being done that well because it ain't it's not working out for the majority of people. Um, right. So I should hope that there would still be those who want to say, well, fuck that. I would like to be able to say breathe the air, uh, you know, and and so forth. And hopefully there'll be enough that'll wake up the mainstream people or the people that are kind of like complacent with what what's available to them. Like they learn how to cope with the fact that they're living in a society that's totally dysfunctional and, and, and so on. And, and maybe it'll wake them up. And I'm hoping, you know, back then in my 20s, I thought it was going to happen before I was 30. I thought there was going to be like... Because uh, I was primed with uh, songs like... This is the dawning of the age yeah. of Aquarius. And stuff like that. All that crap, man. Yeah. It's just like... <clears throat> and I'm hoping eventually, you know, the middle finger, like you say, will be enough. And, I mean, that's how it... It did happen a couple times, I think, in the 60s, where it hit the mainstream, the middle finger works, and people say, hey, what the hell are we doing in Vietnam? Or... And so, what the fuck's up with these civil rights, you know? Why do we have uh, 
second class citizens mm-hmm. still it's shit like that you know what i mean yeah yeah so hopefully uh it'll move along but mm-hmm. i guess it's doesn't happen automatically. Now, I've seen plenty of people involved in punk who took that experience and took it forward to do other things that yeah. have been in some way progressive or creative or something like that. So they kind of took this. I mean, we were talking about this before the interview, but they yeah. kind of took these experiences forward and kind of planted some sort of positive seeds into the world. So it may not yes. have anything directly to do with punk, but it right. came out of a, this shared experience. Um, and I think that that is kind of like the best thing that it can offer to young people is you can do this and then go forward and do something interesting. So they, you know, maybe this assumed by the mainstream where they like to be part of it, but maybe they bring something into it that kind of moves it in a direction that's, you know, somewhat more progressive minded Um, and not necessarily left, right, but just sort of correct ethical and ethical way of of living. Yes. And I, I, I'm glad to hear you say this because it reaffirms my faith in humanity, man, that there's other people that think on this way. Cause that's what I said to myself. I'm not going to make these overwhelming changes. I'm not going to be, you know, but what I can, what can I do in my daily life? Yeah. And what is the least you know amount I mean? of harm that you can do? Or yeah. at least, you know, show some level of respect to other people. Yeah. Um, I mean, the idea of doing this thing is like, I, I would like to think that younger folks will listen to these interviews and say, this guy's not incredibly different from me. He had a, you know, fucked up younger life. No one gave him some vast amount of money to go forth and do these things. I can do stuff too, you know, I don't have yeah. to go along in the path that's been kind of like set up for me. Right. Um, so here's a whole bunch of people who have done a whole bunch of really interesting things. They're yes. under this umbrella called punk, but none of these people are in any way alike, really. They all have different life experiences. It's They've all done through, different stuff. It? Yeah. Yeah. So here, you know, here are some different paths you can choose if you want to. Yes. And they're there viable are. paths. Yeah. Viable um, paths. Yeah. And indeed, this is, a, this indeed. is a positive seed. Instead of planning some kind of bullshit, self-loathing negativity nihilism right. you know some of the stuff that was part of the early punk scene that to me is just a bunch of bullshit because you can get plenty of people to ground your fucking head into the earth but i mean yeah. the person that matters is the guy's like pulling you up and saying let's do something with this thing yeah and and that's that's a good point there's a variety of ways to do it you know what i mean yeah there's a lot of ways to do it yeah and, and if um, you listen to people speaking you can kind of hear the, what they did and yeah. you know maybe you, you want to go that way maybe you don't yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Very good. That's great. Well, super. Well, I mean, I guess we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. Uh, I hate to have it end on me saying something. Um, so I'll oh, ask you. No, no, no. Um, it echoes what I'm thinking. It's good. Uh, so, will there ever be another Ruin reunion, or is that uh, that the end of that? Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, it's uh, maybe it's uh, it's happening right now. I don't know. <laughs> and you're just not there. That's what it's all about. Could you come I mean, in the form of a hologram or something? You know, I mean. What Glenn does, what the individual band members do, and what we people we're connected with do, it's mm-hmm. all it's continuing. You know what I mean? Sometimes it shows up like, oh, here's a flower. It's the ruined flower. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes it's like the ground around, the garden around it, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. All the, the, uh, hmm, I'm making hand motions now instead of speaking. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm wind out of it. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm okay. wind. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thanks, Joseph. It was a pleasure. Mine was too. I gotta go leak. <laughs>